What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's what I think is so interesting about interior design and architecture in general is we get so fussy about it. Things can be repaired. Things can be recovered. Things sometimes just get so much better with age. You're supposed to sort of look at those things and be like, oh, remember when, you know, they have stories. Welcome to Being Home with Hunker, a podcast where we explore the idea of home, not just as a place where you live, but as an expression of your identity. I'm Lori Gunning Grossman, Hunker's editorial director. Today on the show, we have Elise Lunin. Elise is a Los Angeles-based author and podcast host. She's had a long career in media, most recently as a chief content officer at Goop. She was also the co-host of the Goop podcast, so chances are you'll recognize her voice. If you're an architect fan, you'll love hearing about how Elise and her husband landed an A. Quincy Jones-designed home. You'll also hear about her decision of why she moved on from Goop and the career path she's now forging for herself, which includes the recent launch of her own podcast called Pulling the Thread. And if you've ever wondered what it would feel like to live with unlimited access to nature, her stories of growing up in Montana set a scene you won't forget. So let's welcome our guest, Elise Lunin. Hi. Hi there. Welcome. How's it going? How do you like hosting a podcast? So look at you. Look at you asking the questions. <laughs> Sorry. I'll. St- <laughs> it's fun. I'm in my living room. I'm in my bedroom. You're in your bedroom. Okay. Very I'm in nice. the corner, wedged into the corner of my bedroom, but I'm into it. And do you keep singing the R.E.M. song like every day when you go in there? <laughs> that's me in the corner. Or don't put baby in the corner. Oh, yeah. That's a good one, too. Yes. <laughs> Um, I have to tell you, I was thinking about you because I saw on your Instagram how you you go to Montana to ride horses. Yes. I grew up with horses. So I feel like my parents did a good job of teaching us lifelong activities. And it's like riding a bike. Like once you're comfortable with horses, and I think when you start when you're young, then you can get back on a horse at any point and remember how to do it. And it's such a moving meditation, literally a moving meditation, but it's such a meditation and control and who's guiding who and who's dependent on who and who has power and sort of the illusion of control 
that your horse will grant you. Yeah. It's really, I think, profound. So this was in Montana where you went riding, right? Yeah. Close to where I grew up. Yeah. I'm imagining because you live in Los Angeles now and growing up in Montana, I'm imagining it was a completely different childhood. Like what was your home like and what were your surroundings like growing up? Yeah, it was a totally different situation. And the things that I lamented as a child, I would love to have now sort of the solitude and isolation and Mm. um, immediate access to nature that was my childhood. And it's interesting to think about growing up now because like my mom's a pretty anxious and neurotic person. But as a child, I don't recall that. I just recall being sort of turned outside and then told to come back when she would literally ring a bell. I guess we must have been able to hear it throughout the valley. We lived up a valley um, about 20 minutes from town, which was Missoula, Montana, which is a liberal college town that had probably 50,000 people in the county when I was young, 60. And we lived up a dirt road and had horses. We had chickens when I was younger, dogs, cats, mice. Mm. And we had, I don't know, seven acres, maybe there was a creek that came through our property across the road. There was a mountain that we didn't own, but was mine effectively immediate access to like natural forest service trails. Mm. So that's where my brother and I would ride every day. And there was this sense, which as an adult, I recognize I've tried to find throughout my life. Like my mom was an early, probably not early, but appropriately freaked out about global warming as it would Mm. turn out. I always thought that she was insane, but she was like, I'm not dry. I'm not wasting gas. So like when we were home, we were home and we were home a fair amount. And so it was books and nature. And I had this feeling of like, there was nowhere to go. It's not like I, there there was, there were no external distractions, if that makes sense. And so when I moved to New York after college, like there was the energy of the city, which was really fun, but I also just never felt like I was home. It's like, I would be in my tiny cabin, like apartment. And then I'd be like sort of agitating. And I think just sort of feeling unmoored, but I never really felt like home Mm -hmm. in that same way in Montana where like, I couldn't go anywhere. Like, where was I going to go besides out into the woods? Were you able to actually just like hop on a horse and just ride off by yourself? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I know. And there were mountain lions. Like, in retrospect, it makes no sense. I mean, would ride up this draw or walk up the draw, cross the creek on wooden logs. Oh my God. There was an old mine that we discovered that we would like traipse around in. Oh my God. It was probably the perfect place for bears to hibernate. It's really strange, actually. I don't remember feeling watched, Mm -hmm. which makes my parents, I'm sure, sound extremely neglectful. But it was just my reality as a kid. I had a lot of freedom and a lot of nature. Oh my God. Different times. Different times. Different times. Because you have children now. Yes, I do. (laughs) Two boys. Living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Very different than what you're describing. Yeah. Going home to Montana and bringing the kids to this ranch where literally I don't see them all day is, well, one, it's kind of nice because I'm like, oh, this does still exist, you know? And then on the flip side, makes me sad that I can't sort of unleash my kids in Los Angeles in the same way. Do you feel at all with the way the pandemic has been and people fleeing from the cities and 
moving other places. Has that been a thought for you at all since you come from a place where it seems like people romanticize about fleeing too? Yes, certainly. I mean, my parents sadly sold the house that I grew up in, the Mm. only house I had lived in and moved into town into sort of a condo essentially a few years ago. And I was like, this feels like a bad idea. Like, can you please keep the house and rent it out? And if they still had the house, then we would have gone there. But we live in this, in Los Angeles, in this very special house, this A. Quincy Jones gem, architectural gem. And so we have sort of this like feeling, and it's a historic landmark and it's mills protected and we put a lot of energy and resources into its maintenance. And like, we really love our house, even though it's arguably too small, particularly because Vicky, our nanny moved in with us during COVID. So it's like five of us and 1700 square feet, which I did live in New York. So 1700 square feet is a palace, but we're so attached to our house that we also were like, we couldn't sell our house. Yeah. And I don't know, but yes, the whole, all of COVID, I was like, we should not be here. We should not be here. There aren't a lot of great rentals or anything in Missoula, Montana, though. And my husband felt like he's kind of needed to be in LA for his Mm. job. So, but yes, it's something I like fantasize about daily. Tell me more about your home now, because as you said, it's designed by A. Quincy Jones. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's like in a little neighborhood where there are more homes like this, right? How many homes are there? I think there are 33 houses that are remaining that were part of this planned community. And it's this Mm. architecturally controlled community, which the neighborhood sort of board tries to control, but obviously like it's limited. You seek permission, et cetera, before you do anything to your house. But like, it's not really an enforcement agency. It's more of a pact, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an understanding or hope when people sell these houses. And I know that that's the idea is that they're trying to make sure that they're not being bought by developers and and torn down. So you could argue like the land of our house is almost more valuable than like the material of our house if you don't Mm. care about architecture. So there is an effort when people sell their houses to not sell them to developers because they're raising them and installing, you know, massive, much bigger houses. Mm. But there are limitations to how well they can protect these houses. Yeah. So it's landmarked, like we have the plaque. Oh. But it's weird. It's one of those things like where you can can demolish it, but you can't change it. It's like there's some weird stipulation like that. Mm-hmm. And that's how the Mills Act protection works, which essentially is like a tax break. But you're sort of in a covenant with the city and they could do come and check that you are maintaining the house, mm-hmm. that you are doing continual restoration, that you, um, like we did a, we put in a new, we had to replace the existing retaining wall, it was leaning, which was really unfun. I'm sure anyone who has done that sort of work on a hill can feel the pain in my heart about the budget that was spent mm. beneath the surface of the ground. It's not sexy spending at all. No, no, it is not. And we added a small room, which made our house just much more livable. But that all had to go through Mills Act. And we were able to do it because theoretically we could take it off. Like someone could restore the house to its original. We didn't actually alter any of the original lines of the house. So 
it's really interesting what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. They like modernization. We didn't do it, but our kitchen is like an updated, beautiful sort of bulltop kitchen, which is obviously not period, but Mm -hmm. they're very comfortable with interior improvements that would ensure that someone would choose to keep the house, the external structure and the primary structure of the house the same. Yeah. That said, my husband's like a freak. He's like, I need to take off all the drywall and expose the original wood. And we're going to, I'm like, let's not, let's not go back in time. Let's just not. (laughs) (laughs) So when you found the house, did it feel like the biggest score for you guys or for your husband? Like, how did it come about? It was so freaky. So there's another planned, it's called like Beethoven Street, where are, there are these case study houses. The Ain houses. Exactly, the Gregory Ain houses. So we were like, that would be amazing. We were living in an apartment in Venice. We'd moved here. I was um, pregnant with my first child. And we were like, we lived in this pretty awesome four-story loft where the floors were separated by aircraft cable. And I was like, we could swing this for a little while. And my mom was like, no, you could see down to the very bottom from the top floor. Oh. And so Rob, my husband, was like, we just need to watch those Gregory Ains houses. Like, because they were occasionally would come up and there were some that really needed renovation and restoration, which was terrifying to us. We'd never undertaken a project like that. But we reached out to one of the DZ Penner realtors because they, Scott, was on the board. They're sort of, they're governed by a board and he was on the board and we, we just sent him an email and we were like, there's ever anything that's sort of in budget that's architecturally interesting, which as you know, it's really hard, particularly on the West side of Los Angeles to find A, find anything architectural and B, find anything affordable. And, and this is a while ago. Yeah. We ended up starting to work with him just generally. And it was pretty depressing, obviously, that none of those houses were on the market and he didn't have any sense that any of them would be. And so we were looking at things and it was like things at the top of our budget that were teardowns. And so we were kind of despondent. And then he called us and was like, you know, there's this A. Quincy Jones house, like Rob, you'll flip out. It's not on the market. They're considering renting it. They had listed it twice, but because of the retaining wall issues, it had fallen out of contract twice where people had been demanding discounts, um, like significant discounts because of the retaining wall issue. And um, we came to see it and we were like, oh my God. We were like, we'll pay them listing, their last listing. We understand about the wall. Like we won't raise a stink. Yeah. And they sold it to us. (laughs) And so we just bided our time and got really, really lucky. And it just fell in our lap. And we did, to be fair, do the project that we ended up doing on the house. And we tried to make it as accurate and as tasteful as possible. We used like the original brick and, you know, like stepped it to the, my husband's very, um, into the details, I think is a nice way of saying it. And it did, it was so expensive that, um, far more than what, what they had sort of projected when we bought it, but that's okay. You know, um, it's been totally worth it. Did you buy furniture to complement the style? Um, no, we didn't want to theme it out. And we have, um, two cats who we adopted in Clifton, New Jersey before we moved to Los Angeles Hmm. and they, you know, have their claws. There are, I'm looking at one of them right now. There are first children. And um, 
they just destroy things. And we were about to have kids. So we bought like reasonable, like nothing fancy in terms of anything upholstered, like room and board couches that they've, you know, really done a number to. But yeah, we have a lot of Eames furniture. We lived in Venice, like a block from their old, that old Eames studio. Mm -hmm. And if we had a girl, we were going to name her after Ray, uh-huh. but we did not have a girl. So we have a fair amount of stuff like that. And my husband used to work at Moss back in the day. So we have like a lot of interesting lighting. None of it's specifically like period, but yeah. So where, where we can buy durable things, we tend to buy like nice things. But that's what I think is so interesting about like interior design too and architecture in general is that like we get so fussy about it in a way. And I understand, but at the same time, it's like, if you're not going to live with these things, like what's the point of owning them? And things can be repaired. Things can be recovered. Things sometimes just get so much better with age. And like, that's the point. Like you're supposed to sort of look at those things and be like, oh, remember when, you know, they have stories. So true. And one of the things I do think about that our homes tell the story of us. Totally. So if someone didn't know you and came into your home, what kind of story would they be able to tell about you just from seeing what they see? Yeah. So as mentioned, we don't, we don't have a big house. We have a lot of storage. My husband works for Vitsu, which is this modular shelving and furniture company that Dieter Rams designed and you move it all over the place. It's come with us to every house we've lived in and we've added to it. And we have a lot of it because we collect I don't even call it collecting, it's media. So my husband has tons of vinyl, just like shelves of vinyl in our den. And I have books on almost every available wall. So um, anyone who would come into our house would be like, you like to read, (laughs) which is accurate and true. And it's funny, it's like, that is the bulk of our belongings. And you, I know that because when you live in a house like this, you just don't have any real concealed storage. Like I have my sort of California closet wall for all of our clothing and everything like that. And other than that, you see it. And so what you see are books and records, some art, but ultimately like we like, we're a media family. Yeah. (laughs) We know you like books. Yeah. Right. This is one of your things. This is one of my things. And now for a quick break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. 
on Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We'll get back to some home stuff in a little bit, but I want to back up just for a second. Okay. Okay. So you were the chief content officer at Goop. Correct. And you were there for many years. Yeah. Seven, six or seven years. Yeah. And you were the host of their podcast. And I have to tell you, I just loved your interviews. Your style was so and is so accessible. Thank you. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. I love doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm doing my own podcast. Yes. We can be podcast twins. Oh my God. All right. Tell me more about your podcast. (laughs) So it's called Pulling the Thread. Mm. It is similar to the conversations that I hosted on Goop, you know, 45 minute or so conversations, lots of authors, typically people who write nonfiction, you know, around sort of these big questions and this moment in time that we find ourselves in and sort of how do we think about our own experience within a larger context, whether it's religious or political or uh, or not even religious, I'd say spiritual or historical. You know, people you'd be like, you might not know, but who are subject matter experts or um, just like really interesting thinkers. So hopefully people have appetite for another podcast as well. Yeah. This pandemic has changed a lot of of the way we think about our lives, the way we think about things. Is that part of why you decided to go solo and move on from Goop? Yeah. I mean, it's complicated. It's part of it, I think, is like we're all in a deep study about like what are the structures that we rely on versus like where can we rely on ourselves and and also like what are we trying to build and what are our values and like how does everything align and so you know goop when i first joined was really a content brand first and foremost and it's a big e-commerce business now and that's where the brand needs to go and which is great i'm sure people can relate to this you get to a point when you're a creative person and i'm capable of sort of straddling both But where you're like, I just need to keep growing and expanding and I'm either going to like make messes, you know, I'm either going to sort of pull resources into content and into that direction or in order to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. At the end of the day, like I'm a writer. I don't actually really like managing teams. I like working with people. I loved hosting the podcast. I loved working on the Netflix show. I loved when I did have time to write. And so I think like everyone with COVID, everyone's priorities were sort of thrown up on the wall in terms of like, where are we aligned and where are we not? And it's funny thinking about home and durability and the energy of the products that we surround ourselves with and the feeling of restlessness that I'm finding intolerable as I age and just wanting to be content and comfortable with what I already have and to not feel like I need to be driving 
commerce. Mm. No shame in that. You know, like I like to buy things too, but I don't know. It just felt like it was time. Um, The other big sort of moment was I've ghostwritten books for people since I was 24, I think I started. So I've written, I don't know, 11 or 12 books, either with an assistance to or for other people sort of along that spectrum of everyone's different. And (laughs) I was working on the last book, which hasn't come out and it was frustrating experience. And my agent was like, I just don't know why you're not writing your own books. And I'm like, I don't have a book in me. And she was like, on the contrary, like you've written a lot of books. Like there's something deeper here about Mm. you not wanting to be seen, et cetera. And so she really pushed me to think about that. And then I finally had an idea for a book and felt you know, in that way, I'm sure people can recognize where you're like, this has to come out of me. Like, I have to do this. And so I sold a book last summer, which gave me sort of the impetus and the push that I, I needed to sort of move into this, the next stage. That was a really long answer. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. And you're writing from home. Is this like, are you writing in your corner? I write in my corner and my process, like the shower, et cetera, and Fortunately, my husband is also a creative person, so he understands this because I'm sure it's maddening. And we have Vicky, who I mentioned, who like makes life possible for us in general and like just is our third parent. Mm. But yeah, like my process is, I'll just call it childbirth. It comes and you're like, I have to go to the bathroom or like, I like, I need to get this out. It's coming and it feels like channeling. And so that's how I write, like in really intense Um, I do a ton of reading and research and sort of mentally cogitate. Like I just, and then I get to a point where I'm like, it's coming, you know, like get out of my way. Like (laughs) take the kids to the park. I'm having a movement. Um, But no, and I'll sit and I'll write, you know, 5,000 words. Yeah. It does not work for me to sit and write every day for 90 minutes. Like I have to get into it. I have to be ready. Like I really have to feel like it's coming before it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I'm just pushing words around on a page. Sounds like the creative process comes organically for you. Yeah. But do you have like a morning routine or ritual habits that you set yourself up every day, especially working from home? Yeah. I'm imagining a little bit looser timeframe of your day since you don't have to be in an office. Kind of. It's funny, though, because I end up writing a lot on the weekends because that's when I have uninterrupted time, even though I have two kids, just because it's like someone has an appointment or I'm doing some consulting. I sit on a board and then podcasts and stuff like that. Like my days are full of things where I'm like, well, now I can't write Mm -hmm. because I have something in an hour and a half. So it's funny. I'm sure every mom feels this way. And maybe we can heal our sort of mommy wars of like, you know, being at home. And as mentioned, our house is small. We are in each other's space. And like my kids are in here all the time being like, can you play? Mm -hmm. I need to sit on your lap and you need to watch me watch YouTube. You know, Um, they're very. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because they're younger, right? Are they? Yeah, five and eight. But I typically I like get up. I make coffee. I make a lot of coffee, like way too much coffee. So coffee. We put in this clear light sauna at the beginning of COVID, Mm. which is my intent to use every day. It's like an infrared sauna that's literally outside of our house. Yeah, And I need to get back into that process because it's a really good way to sort of like be in a forced meditation. Even if I'm not actually meditating, I'm just 
in there. It's too hot for my phone. <laughs> Just sad that that's what's required. <laughs> and then I light incense. I have a whole thing that my husband makes fun of where I like light my incense. I organize my pens. I have this very specific notebook that I use where I have like 50 of them and I organize my day and my thoughts and make mm. to-do lists of my to-do mm -hmm. list, which is my way of feeling sort of like I have a little bit of control. And that's sort of it. I work out at the end of the day, which is strange, but I'm not a morning workout person and have to make my bed, have to shower. I don't get fully dressed. Like I wear a lot of sweats and stuff mm. still, and I'm not looking forward to going back to more constraining clothing, but I don't know what fits. <laughs> Will you have to go back to more restrictive clothing though? I don't think so. If you're the boss and you're calling the shots and you're... Yeah. I had two work trips like right before Delta where I had a board meeting at Mackenzie Childs in Ithaca. And then I went to Boston to see this company that I'm consulting for. And so I had two consecutive trips where I was dressed like a professional yeah. person. And it was mm. actually really strange to like get on a plane and be like, not only am I on a plane, but I'm in like the blazer <laughs> <laughs> and not a Patagonia pullover. Oh. But no, I don't think so. As you've moved around or continue to move around in life, what are three things in your home that hold the most value for you? Things that hold the most value. That's such an interesting question, which I've actually thought about because we, of course, living in Los Angeles and adjacent to the hills, have had to evacuate, which is actually a really good process. The first time we didn't end up evacuating, but we sort of took inventory of our house and put stuff in the cars. And then we lost energy where we were like, oh, what do we need? You know, at the end of the day. And so when it happened again, I had papers, which I know is not the answer that you're looking for. Papers photos that haven't been digitized, art and jewelry that was like, you know, my engagement ring and stuff like that. That's really not replaceable. Mm. And other than that, you get to a point where you're like, what am I going to do with my wedding dress? Mm -hmm. You know, or this lamp, which is awesome, but oh, well, you know, yeah, my kids, yeah, the cats. Yeah. But yeah. It, it came down really to like, what is absolutely irreplaceable and almost everything is. And then it comes to the question of, and would you buy it again? It's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then do you have non-negotiables in your living space? Um, natural light. We have a ton of that. Our house is like glass, definitely. And then plant life. We have a, a lot of, particularly in our living room, like just live things inside and sort of we finally started letting our cats go outside since COVID, since we're here all the time and they don't go far. Like literally they just try and like hunt lizards immediately outside the door, but like really trying to be inside, outside and like as close to nature as you can be in Los Angeles. You have a fiddle leaf fig behind you. Yes. I'm looking at I bought it at Home Depot. <laughs> okay. So people on the podcast can't see it. It's very healthy. Thank you. I have worked really hard. <laughs> You're doing a good job because that's not easy. Uh-uh. It is not. You bought it at Home Depot. I bought it at Home Depot. What? I bought I bought two. Maybe three. I can't remember what all is in our living room. But yeah. Isn't that wild? They had some good plants. They do have good plants. COVID in LA, like there was like run on um plants. It's a thing. And especially with that fiddly fig tree, everyone's like, how do I keep it alive? I yeah. think is the big question. So you're doing a good job, Thank Elise. Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, finally, what does being home mean to you? It's like where you feel peace. And for me, I think going back to my childhood, it's like where I can sort of not be frenetic. So home for me feels like being back in Montana in general. It's like there's also a proximity to the land that's important to me. Of course, like where my husband and my kids are. But even that's almost not enough. It's like a, it's just that like a tethering of feeling connected to the earth in a way that LA does feel like more like home than New York did as much as I love living in New York. Because I think when you're just like up in concrete on buildings, like you can't connect. Mm -hmm. But I think it's that, it's that there's like a density to it Mm. um, that feels very nourishing. I love it. You are lovely. Oh, thank you. So are you. I'm just wishing you all the best of luck with your podcast. Thank you. Pulling the thread. Pulling the thread. Please listen. Please tell your friends. Absolutely. We'll keep an eye out for your book. Thank you. You're doing great. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. To learn more about Elise, find her on Instagram at Elise Lunin or visit her website, EliseLunin.com, where you can sign up for her newsletter, read her blog, or subscribe to her podcast, Pulling the Thread. You'll love her thought-provoking conversations with leading authors, thinkers, experts, healers, and scientists on how we can come together to build a better world. A new episode drops every Thursday. Be sure to visit our show notes for information on how you can learn more about Elise. You've been listening to Being Home with Hunker. For more information about this episode or others, visit hunker.com forward slash podcast. And if you don't already, please follow our show. If you like what you hear, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends. It really does help. Being Home with Hunker is produced by me, Lori Gunning Grossman, executive produced by Eve Epstein. The podcast is recorded and mixed at Night Shift Audio. Theme music by Jonathan Grossman. Special thanks to our team at Hunker, senior designer, Maury Men, and director of audience development, Gina Goff. Hunker's mission is to inspire and empower you to create a space that expresses who you are, shows off your unique style, and makes your life happier and more productive.